Shall we pray as we come uh, before God and uh, his word? Father, we thank you that you've spoken <clears throat> to us. We thank you for your precious word in our hands. We thank you too for the living word, our Jesus. We thank you that he was faithful. We thank you that he was a faithful son. We thank you that he was a faithful friend of sinners. We thank you that he set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that he would be taken by the hands of wicked men and that outside the city he would be crucified. We thank you that he went there bearing our reproach, taking upon himself our shame and all our sins. Never was uh, grief like thine. A man of sorrows, familiar with sufferings, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not hide your face from the mocking and the scourging and the spitting. We thank you that you committed yourself to uh, your Father. We thank you that you finished the work uh, there in, in that desolate place, Gethsemane, and then at Calvary. We thank you for the cross that stands for all time. Lord, we pray that as we consider your word then that you would open our eyes. We pray the entry of your word would bring light and that we might rejoice to hear for Jesus' sake. Amen. Today's um, <clears throat> title is The Tragedy of a Missed Opportunity. <clears throat> the Tragedy of a Missed Opportunity. Sometimes missed opportunities are not too significant. Nothing too much hangs on what you've missed. Sometimes they're almost comical. One that I remember involves a giraffe at a zoo in France, uh, Douai-la-Fontaine. This was in 2001, and uh, we'd gone as a family to France for a holiday. And this was a zoo that was rather um, different. Instead of animals behind cages, it was a bit more like a safari park, except you weren't in vehicles, you were on foot. And um, they had the elephants and the giraffes and so on, fairly free range, and there were pedestrian walkways that were raised high enough up that if you were lucky, one, uh, one of the animals came close, you were more or less uh, eyeball to eyeball with the giraffe. And I had quite a fancy camera at the time, and uh, a female giraffe came up to me, more or less begging me to take a picture. And there I was with my fancy camera, ready to take the photograph in my mind, the photograph of the century. I could have sent it to a magazine, I don't know. Everything was poised and ready. Press the shutter, nothing happened. <laughs> Slight panic, press again, nothing happened. It turned out, this was pre-digital uh, era, it turned out that we'd been, before the giraffe enclosure, we'd been in the hothouse where the reptiles and the lizards were kept and the frogs, and it was steamy, and the steam had got into the workings of the camera, and it had seized up. I think I ran back to the uh, reception and got um, 
a disposable camera, but by then, of course, the moment was gone. And what might have been the photograph of the century uh, was anything but. It was more embarrassing than anything. The missed opportunity that I want to speak about this morning is on another level completely. Everything rides on this opportunity. This is life and death. This is about you. Uh, it's about today. Something missed that could have been grasped. Something worth more than all the world. I want us to look uh, again at the verses that we read in Luke 19, verses 41 to 44 particularly. We'll just read those verses again. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There are three things here that highlight the tragedy of this missed opportunity. Firstly, how Jesus comes to the city. He comes on a donkey. It isn't designed to impress anyone. It isn't designed to strike fear into the people. It isn't designed to provoke awe and wonder. It's a donkey, and it's a borrowed donkey at that. He comes, as was prophesied in Zechariah, he comes humbly. He comes as a king, but he comes as a meek king. He is not interested in power. He's not interested in acclaim. He's not interested in wealth. He's not interested in the kingdom, as many saw it. And Jesus, whilst he's being acclaimed by the crowds and whilst they're singing their songs of praise, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, he knows something that no one else knows. He knows how fickle the crowds are. He knows how superficial their praise is. He knows that very soon those same voices will be baying for his blood. He comes as a king, according to prophecy, but to be rejected by his own people. He's not coming to take up a throne in Jerusalem. I think the disciples must have had in view some kind of scenario where he would be a new David, and they would see trappings of prestige and power and glory and an expanding of Israel to its former borders under David and Solomon, perhaps even further than that. He hadn't come to take up a throne in that sense. He'd come to be taken by the hands of wicked men, to be crucified outside the city walls. 
Jesus doesn't come demanding respect. If anyone had a right to be respected, it was Jesus, the Son of God. The one whom these scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the people, the one whom they should have recognized as the Messiah, the one whom they should have encouraged the people to uh, worship and obey, the, one, the ones who were in the end responsible for stirring up the crowd to hound Jesus to death. These leaders, they're the ones who had every reason to see who Jesus was and to worship him and to welcome him as the prophesied, the promised Messiah, the King. Right through the Old Testament, God had been sending his prophets. There's a, a parable uh, told just in the next chapter of Luke, the parable of the wicked tenants. And uh, Jesus is reminding the Jews there that they had shamefully treated the prophets like the servant sent by the vineyard owner. And the tenants there had treated the servants shamefully, just as, says Jesus, through the generations you treated the prophets shamefully. Finally, the vineyard owner says, Surely, if I send my son, surely they will respect my son. Surely they'll welcome my son. No, they stone him to death as well. And the inescapable message from Jesus to that generation of the leaders of Israel was, this is what you are doing. The blood of the Messiah will be on your hands. It's a tragedy today that we have uh, many uh, leaders who are interested just in power, who are self-serving, they're hungry to just maintain their own position. But the Lord Jesus comes not in that way, not insisting on respect. He doesn't come to be served, we read elsewhere, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is the tragedy that when we reject Jesus, when we miss the opportunity to welcome Jesus, to believe in him and to trust him, we are rejecting not a, some kind of dictator, not a power-hungry figure, we are rejecting the meekest and humblest and most gracious man that has ever lived, one who has all authority, one who before his death could easily have summoned legions of angels to uh, deliver him, one who had all authority in heaven and earth but submitted himself to the death of the cross and made himself nothing, made himself poor for us. That's the tragedy when Jesus, when this Jesus is rejected, that we're rejecting someone like that. 
This is the Jesus who we know says, Matthew uh, 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he is doing so as the one who is entrusted and authorized by the Father to give life. He has life to give. He can say, as no one else can, come to me, but they wouldn't come. He is the one, in a way that no one else can, who is entitled to say, I can give you rest. Why would you continue like the slaves that your forefathers were in Egypt? Why would you continue under the yoke of the scribes and the Pharisees and the hundreds and thousands of rules and regulations that they bind upon you? Why would you continue in that system of outward religion? Why would you continue to be blind, led by blind guides? They won't lift a finger to relieve any of your burdens. You'll both end up in a ditch. I have rest to give you, rest for your souls. My burdens will be your burdens. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. You will find rest for your souls. That's how Jesus comes to the city. That's how he comes to the people of Jerusalem. That's how he comes in the gospel today. Meek and lowly. It can be very difficult, can't it, to approach somebody who's self-important. Somebody who, if you approach them at a party or some kind of do, they're always looking over your shoulder to see who else might be there to talk to. Maybe they're looking at their watch, they get fidgety, and you're conscious that you're not worth much of their time. Jesus is there for the broken-hearted, for the contrite. He won't quench the smoldering flax he won't break the reed that's bruised and weak. Come to him. You will find rest for your souls. It would be a tragedy if you said no to someone like that, wouldn't it? Secondly, the tragedy of this missed opportunity is highlighted in how Jesus warns the city. And these are very somber words, aren't they? The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. 
They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I'm not a party to the depth and the mysteries of God's ways. There are secret things that belong to him, but there are revealed things that belong to us. And I know these two things without a doubt, that a time is coming for whatever reason when it will be too late. It will be too late to welcome and to receive and believe in Jesus. It will be too late to take him as your saviour. The second thing I know is that today the invitation stands. Today the invitation is there. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can you see how Jesus' heart is moved in verse 42? Would that you, if only you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This generation, uh, says Jesus, many of you are in a state where these things are encrypted. You can't understand, you won't understand. They are impenetrable. Your hearts have become so hard. There is a time coming when it is too late. When, in the words of the previous parable that we read in Luke 19, when even what you have will be taken away. Jesus warns, doesn't he, about the end of Jerusalem as well, verse 43 to 44, that this particular generation of people uh, would face an awful end at the hand of the Romans. Titus, the Roman general, laid siege to the city in AD 70, cut off all the supplies and trapped thousands of people there uh, for the Passover. The inhabitants of Jerusalem were systematically starved. The city was literally and utterly uh, demolished. Thousands of men, women, children either killed, the survivors taken away to Rome to become victims in the circus games and of the gladiators. And yet, <clears throat> there's something far worse even than that. According to scripture, the time is coming when Jesus Christ will intervene, not just for the city of Jerusalem, but he will intervene in the world as a whole. He will come on the clouds of heaven and bring an end to all things. What will bring an end to the world isn't um, climate change and it isn't a nuclear catastrophe. It isn't anything in the control of man. The Lord Jesus Christ, at the timing known only to the Father, will return to claim his people and to bring in his kingdom and to renew the whole cosmos, the heavens and the earth, and to visit judgment on those who 
refuse to repent and believe. And this is the tragedy, that there will be those who have left it too late. There will be those who've lived their lives and gone right to the point of their death and then passed into eternity, lost and unbelieving. There'll be those who had an interest in the things of the gospel, who were thinking about Jesus, who were warm to the gospel, and then drifted away and thought no more. It's a terrifying thing to think that the people uh, to whom Jesus is speaking change their approval and their praise into condemnation, conspiring to get rid of Jesus. One day, then, it will be too late. And we can't assume, can we, that things will always just continue as they are. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Today may be the last Lord's Day that any of us are met in the presence of God together and hearing his word and thinking about Jesus and seeing in him the Savior, the King, the Messiah, the gentle and lowly one that he truly is. The English philosopher Thomas Hobbes back in the 17th century said, hell is truth seen too late. This is the same man who at the end of his life is reported to have said, now I'm about to take my last voyage, a great leap in the dark. Isn't that a, a tragic way to face your end? A great leap in the dark. So, there is a time coming when it will be too late, but today, if you will hear his voice, the scripture says, do not harden your hearts. Today, the door is still open if you will repent and believe. If you will see, as Jesus says to the people of Jerusalem, if you will see the things that make for your peace, the things that will give you freedom from guilt, the things that will make things right between you and God, the things that will give you the ability to face death, to face anything. The door is still open. If you forgive another France-based uh, <coughs> anecdote, we had our honeymoon <coughs> in France in 1987, and um, we were due to catch our return ferry from Calais uh, to Dover. But uh, we'd been uh, spending time a long way from Calais, um, several hundred miles, and uh, time was against us on the journey. We were panicking about having to pay tolls on the motorways and so on. And uh, we got to the port of Calais uh, considerably later 
than the stated boarding time. And we saw the ferry there ahead of us uh, lit up and uh, the vast space where normally there are queues of lorries and cars waiting to board the ferry, but there were no queues. And we thought, it's too late until a port official with his uh, uniform uh, beckoned us and said, quick, or he would have said, vite, vite. Um, and as we drove forward, the door, the back door of the ferry was still open. And we zoomed on, we went on, found our uh, place on the ferry, and the door was shut, literally shut behind us. The door is still open, and it doesn't matter whether you were ever so careful and wise about your journey to get there, and you were first on, or whether you were more foolish and had to rush and were the last one on and the door shut behind you, it doesn't matter just as long as you're on that ship. The door is still open. <clears throat> then lastly, the tragedy of the missed opportunity is highlighted by how Jesus weeps for the city. Verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He would have had uh, something of a, a bird's eye view, looking uh, at the city nestled among the hills, looking from uh, a raised uh, vantage point. He wept over it. It translates uh, a Greek word that's different from the one used in John 11:35, Jesus wept. It's uh, an even stronger word. It implies a wailing or a sobbing. It's the same word that's used of the widow of Nain uh, as she wept at the loss of her only son. He looks at the city and it's the thought of what might have been it's the thought that they had the opportunity, that they had the Messiah, that over the generations they had had the oracles of God, that they had had over the generations the prophets, that they had had faithful ministry, that they, to them belonged the, the covenant. And yet they had turned their backs on true religion. They turned their backs on the, the living core of what uh, the worship of God was supposed to be, and they'd encrusted it all with just ritual and submission to a thousand man-made regulations. They neglected, says Jesus elsewhere, justice and, and mercy and love in the interests of tithing out tiny amounts of aniseed and, and cumin. They'd lost the plot a long time ago. They were blind. Jesus is grieved by their hardness of heart. I suppose that weeping is 
a breach, isn't it, of a, an invisible barrier, an invisible membrane that maintains control normally. But sometimes the emotional pressure just becomes too great and it bursts forth, the membrane is broken. Sometimes very complex emotions are involved. Sometimes it's uh, joy, sometimes it's, it's grief, sometimes it's anger as well, bitterness. It's something that's uniquely human. It's unknown to angels to weep. It's unknown to animals uh, to weep. But Jesus, being a real man, that membrane bursts and he has to weep. He can no longer contain the emotional intensity, the pressure of what he feels. If only, verse 42, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Salvation was held out to you. From day to day, God stretched out his hand to you, but you proved to be a disobedient and a contrary people. How many opportunities have you had to believe, to repent and believe? Have you taken your opportunity? Psalm 81 um, from verse 8 uh, reflects the uh, emotions that Jesus has. They are reflecting the, the heart of God. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you, nor shall you bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Oh, the things in the heart of God that he would give if only they would have listened, if only they would have repented. What if Jesus is weeping now? Does he weep over my stag? Does he weep over the communities that we live in? Do you weep? Do you weep at the thought of those known to you who have had the opportunity but have not listened? And for whatever reason, uh, pride, the perverseness of the human heart, an attachment to sin, for whatever reason, they have not turned, they have not repented, they have not believed in Jesus. 
Do you weep over that? And what if Jesus is weeping over you this morning? The things that you could have if you would turn to him, if you would grasp the opportunity that is here uh, now. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that our Savior is the Savior of all who call upon him. We pray that you would give us, Lord, sincere hearts that we might call upon the Lord while he may be found and seek him uh, while he is near. For Jesus' sake, amen.